All right. Well, love is in the air. It is Valentine's Day. I hope everybody is enjoying their day, whether they're celebrating a Valentine's Day with a sweetie or a Galentine's Day or a Friends Day, whatever people counterculture try to avoid Valentine's Day. Sure. I don't know what you do, but I support it, whatever it is. Our kids' daycare. It's friends and family. Oh, that's nice. Friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. link. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, love is in the air. And one type of love that we can talk about is the love an international mega corporation may have for destroying everyone and everything in its path. I fully support that segue. Yeah, I think that's so, good. <laughs> uh, this is from The Intercept article by Sharon Lerner. How the environmental lawyer who won a massive judgment against Chevron lost everything. Oh, no. It's a sad one. It's a sad one. This is about an attorney named Stephen Donzinger, who (laughs) in 1993 filed a class action suit in New York against Texaco on behalf of 30,000 farmers and indigenous people in the Amazon. And this was over some massive contamination from the company's oil drilling there. So wait, he filed the suit on behalf of people who didn't live in New York? People in the Amazon? Yes, he was He was suing on behalf of these people in the Amazon, suing in a New York court. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how all the jurisdictional stuff works out there. But Texaco subsequently acquired by Chevron. So that's why it's, it's Chevron. Go, so just to square the difference there. But he won this suit, won a massive judgment on behalf of his clients, none of which they have subsequently seen. Oh, of course, because, they yeah. never see the money, yeah. only the lawyer the, does. Well, the, he didn't uh, see oh, much no? either. Well, he, they've come after him with guns blazing. And oh, like have, retribution. Yeah, and have essentially tried to destroy him. He's currently under house arrest because he refused to turn over his cell phone and computer as part of a criminal contempt charge based on the fact that there was a judge in Ecuador who claimed that Donzinger did attempt to bribe him at some point. There's no real verification of this. It is purely his testimony, which contradicts other testimony he's given. The thing that makes it particularly suspect is that Chevron has studiously avoided anything going in front of a jury. And everything that has been decided in the case has been decided by this judge, uh, Lewis Kaplan in New York, who has been on the record speaking glowingly of Chevron, seems to, by the judgment of other observers and legal scholars, to be going out of his way in a quite ridiculous fashion to see that this guy is receives the most extreme punishment he can based on what's going on here. And so I've been very conspiracy minded lately it's uh it's, <laughs> it's you know air. it's an affliction but really the way to think about conspiracy is this that we all live kind of enmeshed in a thick network of conspiracy and much of it is not that hard to understand you don't need to like go down the rabbit hole most of it just kind of happens in the open People with money and power use that money and power to protect the money and power. Right. They're um, not even saying to themselves, oh, we're going to be devious. They're just like, well, I have a problem. Let's solve it. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a big bottom line issue for them. If, if you give in to paying some massive judgment against you in one instance, 
How are you going to avoid all you know, the rest of yeah, them? Yeah, we're very used to seeing once in a while, you know, these these heroic crusading lawyer stories. They make movies about them. That's right. You get your yeah, Aaron Brockovich yeah. story. You feel good. You say someone beat the system, but the truth is, there's fifty other cases where nobody yeah, beat yeah. the system. And usually, when you watch those movies, what beating the system means when you really look at it is like, well, they got away with it. And then 20 or 30 years later, someone was able to sue them for and damages money, and right. get some money, which is not nothing. And it certainly impacts the way business is done. But uh, Well, and the idea is that the settlement reduces the chances that anyone else is going to follow that path. But at the same time, I don't know that it does unless the financial settlement is so big that it truly, truly hurts their bottom line, other companies are just going to look yeah. and say, well, that's the cost of doing business. Yeah, and, and 20 again, years, we have to pay for this. 20 but... or 30 years later, they may not even be doing the same things that they were doing 20 or 30. I mean, they may have already pivoted away from whatever mm -hmm. horrid thing they were doing for other reasons. Right. The executive so, who made that decision is already retired so, with his parachute and he doesn't care. Yeah. So, so I think we, it's good for us to keep in mind just what it means to even get that level of justice, the amount of sacrifice that is needed to even get like that small level of restitution. And what I don't know, what can you do? Well, you know what it reminds <laughs> me of is that story about the guy who he invented the windshield wipers. Oh, there yeah, was a great movie about that guy. And and part of the movie was explaining this idea that, yeah, he sacrificed everything and he won in the end and he got all his money because they had stolen his patent and, you know, they mm -hmm. weren't paying him for this invention that he made. But along the way, he lost his family. He lost any employability that he had. And really, there's a distinct tone to the movie of did he really win? And that seems like what happened here. This guy, even though he won, he didn't win. His life has been ruined and the people he was trying to help didn't get anything either. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that since the story is getting intention, maybe there is a brighter future somewhere in the cards for uh, Steven Zonziger because I, I think people are aware of the fact that there's been an outrageous miscarriage of justice here, probably. Yeah. Once you get and, to the point of naming a judge in an article and saying this judge is causing problems, I think maybe there's a little bit, hopefully. Yeah. I, I hope so. Anyhow, boo Chevron. Come at me, bro. <laughs> You're next. You're going to be on house arrest before this thing is over. That's right. We're going to have to get yeah, all the microphones into your living room and come to you. Very dangerous podcasting we're doing here, but we do it for the people. But go read this at The Intercept. It is a brief but harrowing read. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. So we all remember a couple of months ago, the uh, viral tweet that went out about feral hogs, 30 to 50 feral hogs, I believe was the line. <laughs> yes. Uh, and what was this? It, well, I, so it was a debate over gun control. Right. Was, and the guy was basically <laughs> saying, if you take away my AR-15, what am I supposed to do when 30 to 50 feral hogs show up in my front 30 yard? 30 to 50 is, a, is, is such a perfect range right. to specify. <laughs> it's like, but, well, and it's, it's the kind of vagueness that makes you say, you've pulled that number out of your butt. Like, you know that that's not an accurate count of how... <laughs> How many hogs generally show up in his yard? He's like, Could I, 30 to 50. I don't even know. Mm -hmm. Could be more. Well, it turns out the feral hog problem, while this gentleman may have been exaggerating a little bit, sure. is actually a problem. And it's more of a problem than I realized. I had read this article and was sort of shocked by it. So first of all, when we talk about feral pigs, we are talking about a different species almost where they're much bigger than the pigs that you think about on a factory farm. They weigh between 150 and 400 pounds. They are very aggressive. They have tusks. They're able to knock down fences. They're able to burrow under brick walls. Like anything they can get their nose under, they can dig a tunnel and get yeah. underneath it. And they're very destructive. But the real problem, it turns out, is in their numbers. 
There are 7 to 8 million of them worldwide, but it's estimated that 2.6 million of those live in Texas. Really? Yeah. So this is a personal problem for us. We have apparently- Or a point of personal pride. That's true. We could be very proud of our feral (laughs) hogs. But yeah, so apparently they are a real issue. And of course, as with any invasive species, part of the problem is how quickly they breed. They are able to produce litters less than a year old. Like they are born and then 10 to 12 months later, they're having babies of their own. They have a litter of five to six pigs every year. And the population has just exploded. They don't have any natural predators except apparently people with AR-15s because there's no other way to stop them because they're these huge, thick-hided creatures. And of course, the great irony is that they are a self-sustaining problem in the sense that some of the herds that live out there were initially brought to the areas they're in outside of Texas because people enjoy hunting them. They said, oh, I had so much fun hunting these feral hogs in Texas. I'm going to capture a few, bring them up to Montana. And within 10 years, they have a massive feral hog problem themselves, such that they're in the position we are where you have to cull them. Otherwise, they're just going to completely take over. They say that in order to keep the population steady, just to prevent them from growing, we would need to be killing 1.8 million a year. And we're not killing nearly that many. The USDA kills about 30,000 a year, which the farmers are basically saying that's a joke. Why even bother? But there is a new business model that has arisen of people who go out hunting and, you know, like people do hunting safaris. But the best way, apparently, to hunt feral hogs is by helicopter. Oh, God. So there are a number of businesses that have sprung up in Texas specifically where you can rent a helicopter. They'll fly you out over the fields where these hogs are known to run wild and you get to shoot them with big, ridiculous guns. And they basically say this is ecological because we have to keep these populations down. They estimate that 240,000 of these feral hogs are killed per year by private helicopter hunting services. Mm. And they all have great names like Hellebacon and Swine Time and things. It's terrible. But they note that it is genuinely a problem. When the farmer says, you know, what am I supposed to do when 30 yeah. to 50 feral hogs show up in my yard? That actually can happen. It is a problem. Sure. I don't know that the best way to get rid of them is with an AR-15, but... Are the the feral hogs, are, are they, do they all come from, are they escapees from hog farming? They yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. They said yeah. originally back in the 80s, it was a couple of them got out and it takes only a couple generations before they start adapting. Okay, yeah. They said, actually, this is one of the problems that they're already starting to see these helicopter companies. They said they've already started to see adaptation behaviors to the helicopter hunting, which has not been going on that long. They note that they're becoming more nocturnal and they have developed a new behavior. They've just started seeing where if the herd is running, one will shoot off to the side as a distraction and the rest of the herd gets away. And they said this isn't a behavior they've ever seen before, but they're just now starting to do it. Well, they're smart. Yeah, they're very smart animals. And um, I I, I eat meat, so I have no moral ground to stand on here. But, uh, you know, it is a kind of return of the repressed. Yeah, Mother Nature fighting back. Our just uh, desserts for the cruel slaughter of animals as we practice it in industrial farming. But, yeah, I don't know anything about what is necessary to control the swine Animal population. Popu- population. So I'll give anyone, I guess, the benefit of the doubt who has more knowledge than I do. But it is a little unsettling to imagine people kind of the, the helicopter thing freaks me out. I'm just going to say on like it's just a little, a, yeah. just on a gut level, the helicopter thing freaks me out because it's hard for me. It, it's what it's like where you're living out some kind of apocalypse now fantasy, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. raining down bullets from this helicopter. But I, if it's the way to do it, I 
guess it's the way to do it, but it creeps me out. I mean, there, did the article mention anything about other methodologies for controlling these populations? Well, I think fundamentally it's a money issue. To go out and kill that many hogs, it's a full-time job for a lot of people, yeah. and the government won't pay for it. The USDA right. says, yeah, we'll we'll help you kill about 30,000 a year, and the people living in these rural areas are saying that's not enough. So they have to make it- So they have to turn it into a private entertainment. enterprise. Yeah, in order to get other people to pay- to kill these hogs. So it's it's a problem. I had not really understood the degree to which it was a problem. And apparently it's encroaching on suburban areas mm-hmm. now, which is why articles are getting written and people are starting right. to pay attention. In 2014, these feral hogs apparently are big fans of pumpkin. That's one of the foods that they sort of really consider a delicacy in the pig world. And there was a church outside of Houston around Halloween. They had an annual pumpkin sale where they would put all these pumpkins outside and sell them for Halloween. And they had in the past been burned so badly with feral hogs coming and just destroying the pumpkin patch and the surrounding buildings and the parking lot and everything around it that they had to enlist armed guards to stand watch over the pumpkin patch at night to keep the feral hogs from coming in and and just destroying the suburban parking lot of their church. Last week, it was Escobar's hippos. That's right. Now Now this week, it's our own feral hogs. Maybe in some sense, I'm just, I'm kind of rooting for the hogs. A little bit. You kind of feel like, you know what, if they have more power to them. Yeah, (laughs) it's kind of, I mean, again, maybe we deserve it. Uh, You know, I mean, obviously we deserve it in a certain sense. You know, they they should have the right to fight on behalf of their species as much as we uh, fight on behalf of ours. Maybe we need to arrive at a compromise, a reasonable compromise, and just hand some land over to the hogs. Right. Well, in the any fence we put up, they're just going to go right on it. You can't keep a hog Ooh, down. Okay. That's yeah. part of the problem is containment. Part of the problem. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, if, if we had proper negotiations with, you know, the hog president, I think maybe we could come to an agreement. Maybe a our... peninsula, <laughs> uh, which might be a little bit easier to enclose. That's true. We'll give them Florida. Uh-huh. Just put all the all the hogs <laughs> in Florida, seal it off right around Tallahassee yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Gosh. Of course, it won't be long before they learn to swim. You know, pigs can swim. Yeah. That's a problem. You're going to start getting cross-gulf migrations of these pigs. They'll Mm -hmm. show up in Louisiana, and you're thinking, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. How big can a feral hog get? They said 400 pounds is not uncommon. Not uncommon. Which is, I mean, that's ridiculous. You try to imagine a 400-pound animal. That's a very large animal. And they can charge Mm -hmm. humans. And, yeah, they're very aggressive. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't think there is a good answer. I know that the Agriculture Department in Texas is talking to the Agriculture Departments in all these other states that have much smaller populations going, look, you're where we were 20 years ago. You're headed for our situation if you don't get on top of this mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. But there's no funding. There's no funding for pig hunting crews. <laughs> <laughs> Hogs, if you're listening, uh, you are very smart creatures. So I, I have to they imagine at some point, the they will, yeah, they will start to get into podcasting <laughs> and other contemporary uh, media. Uh, you know, media. So Hogs, if you're listening, um, just just know that I am willing to sell out. Uh, <laughs> I, I will bow. I will be the first to bend the knee. He welcomes you, our new pig yeah. overlords. Yeah, I welcome my new pig overlords. Is basically See, but the I'm question saying. is, are you willing to give up bacon? Like maybe they could offer a treaty and all we'd have to do is stop eating bacon. I think no one would be on board with that. It'd be very hard, hard sell. <sighs> I mean, it's it sounds like at this point we could just... Uh, <laughs> bacon for dis- every meal. Discontinue farm raised uh, and just forbid... Farm raised pork and just be like, (laughs) all pork has to be caught wild. Yeah, you got to hunt it yourself. So so like, are there uh, brands that are offering feral 
pig meat? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. They actually, they talked about this a little bit in the article. They said that when they go out there and hunt these feral hogs by helicopter, they can't actually use the meat because there's FDA regulations about mm. when it was killed and how long ago it was killed right. and the circumstances under which it was killed. Right. And so they, they said, even if we wanted to, current law prohibits it. But, you know, if these feral pigs continue to be a problem, maybe the laws will change. Maybe the FDA will say, you know what? Let's uh, let's loosen that He's a little back bit. back on that. Yeah. Well, we shall see. Yeah, we'll find out soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay. So this is from Wired by Michael Waters, and this is titled The Digital Colonialism Behind .TV and .ly. So this was fascinating to me because something I was completely ignorant of. What do you think the LY top level domain in, you know, URLs like uh, there's there's a like lot of bit brand, like bit.ly mm -hmm. and you could just make up some and they probably actually exist. Like I'm sure. Yeah. Chunkly, <laughs> fartly. Somebody go out there and make find out if those dopperly, are Dopperly, whatever the hell they are. What, do, what does the LY stand for? Well, I mean, I assume it's a country code. I know a lot of those suffixes are countries, but I don't know what LY is. It's Libya. Know. It's oh, Libya. Libya. So okay. you knew, you know more than I do. I had just blithely assumed that it was like, they must have just kind of opened it up right. and like these don't necessarily represent anything specific. Well, and they do but, have some like that. There's like .shop and .email. There's several. I know this because I just registered a domain yesterday for totally unrelated purposes. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, you said, oh, here's .com. It's 12 bucks. Here's all of these other ones. You could have .shop, .whatever. And they're like $1.99. They clearly want you to go with the wider variety. And I'm like, no, .com is what everybody uses. Mm -hmm. But some, so some of these are not just unique. They're actually attached to countries. Yes. Many of the fashionable top level domains are meant to be associated with a specific country. And the way that these countries lost control of those domains, many of them a long time ago, mm -hmm. is this kind of story of colonial exploitation in miniature. So what happened was in the 80s, a scientist at USC named John Postal co-created the internet's domain name infrastructure. And he decided as part of that, that each country should have its own unique extension. So this is way back at the beginning. They said off the bat, every country is going to have their own. Right. Yeah. This okay. is in, in like the very early days. By 1985, he designed .us for the United States, .uk for the United Kingdom, .il for Israel. Following the kind of open ideology of the early internet, the idea that the internet was supposed to be kind of a commons, but also the sort of naivete that that commons would just kind of protect itself. Right. What Postal did is he tried to find people in each country to assume the administrative rights to each top level. That's domain. true, because back then the governments didn't know anything about it. You would have had to find the one technical person in Liechtenstein who knew what he was doing. That's right. So he wasn't really even going through governments. He was just looking for someone in who, that country who would, who would claim, you know, a connection to that particular country to give the admin rights to. And because this was still the very, very, very early days of the internet, in a lot of cases, these admin rights would end up with individuals who, in some cases, just straight up lied about being a resident of the country. But in many other cases, you know, it was like the one white American guy living, living living on some South Pacific island. You know, for example, the case that leads off the article is about the island of Mew. Mew? Um, yeah, okay. which is dot. N U. That's their top level 
domain. Okay. They lost the rights to this domain a long time ago because they just didn't know. Again, it's the colonial story. It's like- Buy Manhattan this is for not, some beads. This is no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, it's, we don't know what the value of this is. We don't have computers. And since .nu is essentially new in mm-hmm. Swedish- it's a very popular domain extension in, in Sweden. Sweden because that's a very grabby, hooky extension. So I would encourage you to check out the article for all of these actual examples here. We do come to the nation of Tuvalu. Oh, is that yeah. .tv? Is that's tu- .tv, oh. right? And they don't own those rights anymore. They're not making any money off of the Twitch.tv. And yeah, the- an Amazon-owned service. So we're talking about a very, very, very profitable website. In their case, quote, the nation only discovered that it had a top-level domain when in 1995 it received a fax from an American <laughs> helping to market it. When they investigated it, they found out that they had already lost the rights Long ago, and they didn't. Uh, it had even, been assigned yeah. to an American computer programmer who lived again, in the country or lied. Uh, about I don't. It. I don't think he lived in the country. Again, one of the things that this article goes into is that it was very easy for folks to just fake it to right. get to obtain the rights to one of these top level domains. Some of them are getting a little bit of money. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Tuvalu gets something like. Five million per year, but when you look at the revenue that's being it's pulled generating. in by sites that are on .tv, that's peanuts. So every time you are watching a three-hour-long video of someone playing Fortnite <laughs> um, and Stink talking in a funny voice, tu- Tuvaluvians is that who they are? Tuvalans, tu- Tuvaluans, Tuvaluans. That's Tuvaluans. real. Oh, Tuvaluans. Yeah. Think about the Tuvaluans, maybe uh, find a a way to throw a few bucks their way. Yeah, go look at some charities that are uh, helping out that area. Buy Tuvalu products (laughs) or something like that. All right, next link. Next Next link. link. So we're all familiar with the concept of the dark web, the uh, hidden secret part of the internet where illegal things happen and it's all encrypted and they can't index it. Well, I don't know if they can't, but Google doesn't index it. There's just lots of really dark, dark, nasty stuff going on on the web. And as it turns out, this article is from MIT Technology Review. It's part news, part philosophical self-introspection. Cyber criminal Eric Marquez pled guilty this week in federal court mm-hmm. to running Freedom Hosting, which as of 2013, when he was initially arrested, it was hosting up to half of all dark web websites. So it was a major, major provider for all of these underground things. Specifically, they arrested him for hosting child pornography. They said that he was responsible for just the vast majority yeah. of all child pornography on the web. Very which bad. We're against horrible. it. It's horrible. Official glad. statement from the podcast. That's right. We, against uh, it. We're, <laughs> we're against it. And he was arrested and the whole thing was shut down. And the question is, of course, this happened in 2013. Mm-hmm. He was brought down. Why did it take seven years for his case to fully go through the court system and finally get a guilty plea this week? And the reason is because his defense attorneys said, we want to see not just the evidence, but we want to know how you acquired the evidence. All of this is encrypted. You have to tell us how you caught him. And the FBI said, no, we don't. Mm -hmm. We we do not have to divulge the particular bugs and vulnerabilities that allowed us to find him. And the defense lawyers kept fighting back and the FBI kept refusing. And ultimately, the FBI gave them a really vague general sense of how they caught him, but they refused to divulge mm-hmm. these specific bugs. And the judge allowed it to go. He said, OK, that's sufficient. You know enough. Let's move on with this court case. But of course, even the vague thing is enough for people to sort of say, oh, OK, we maybe have a sense. Turns out there is a browser called Tor, which mm-hmm. is known for being a, an encrypted browser. Uh, newsflash, guys, it isn't safe anymore. The FBI has cracked Tor. 
Sorry, guys. Yeah. And they didn't say how. They don't know how they did it, but they absolutely yeah. have cracked tour. It's no longer safe. And you have to buy your salvia by other means. <laughs> That's right. But of course, you know, the question about all of this is, do we have a right to have stuff that is hidden from the FBI or should the FBI be able to get all up in our business and catch the child pornographers among us? You know, sure. sure. And the FBI, they consider these particular vulnerabilities to be incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. beneficial to them. And in fact, in the past, they have been known to drop cases against individual users because the judges in those cases said, no, you have to reveal exactly how you caught this person. And they said, it's not worth it. We're going to drop all charges against this criminal because we need to keep this vulnerability Mm -hmm. for ourselves. It's like cracking the enigma machine in World War II. You have to pretend you don't know how you got the information. Right. There was an article that I saw this week that was about the issue of police who are unable to get a warrant for acquiring certain types of personal information. But they found a simple way to get around that was to just go to these marketing firms that have collected data around people and just buy it. And just, yeah, buy it like it's a mailing list. Just buy it like any company would. Yeah. So they don't need the warrant. They can just go buy it from some uh, marketing data outfit. So yeah, there's so many issues involved. Yeah. And of course, you know, my instinct is to be very, very wary of, right. of, Don't of let giving them in. investigators and prosecutors uh, too much power. But again, I will say this podcast stands firmly against child pornography. <laughs> Just for the record. The they, production and dissemination of yeah. it. Um, they do have a process in place for what it's worth. They said the NSA and the CIA and FBI routinely come across certain vulnerabilities as they're trying to break into various criminal systems. And they have something called the vulnerability vulnerabilities equities process, which is supposedly a sort of committee that where you it's like getting a warrant, but not really. It's do we divulge this vulnerability to the manufacturer of this software Mm. so that they can patch it? Supposedly, they default towards disclosure because they want these companies to fix these bugs, because if the vulnerability is out there, it's out there for everybody. They Mm. can be counterhacked just as easily. But they have to go to get approval if they want to use a particular bug in a particular investigation. And it seems like, at least for now, and it's always the slippery slope argument, but it seems like they only generally use this in cases of human trafficking, murder, you know, big things. They're not going after small-time drug users on the dark web. And they noted that one of the ways that they have kept a lot of their vulnerabilities secret, they haven't had to reveal them, is that they frequently get these guys on other things. Right. Like when, for example, only two months after... Freedom hosting went down. Silk Road came down and it effectively from the same vulnerability. And the reason they were able to prosecute Silk Road so quickly was because he had other crimes that they could prove, such as hiring a hitman. Right. He had some other stuff going on where they were able to get him outside of the system by which they found him. So they didn't have to reveal how they got him. Whereas Eric Marquez, all he had done, all he had done was uh, hosted a bunch of child pornography, which is illegal, but he had not committed any crimes outside of the hosting. So they had to get him on the hosting and nothing else. And this is kind of a classic tactic is you can investigate and you kind of skirt the edge of constitutionality, but then try to find something that doesn't entirely rely on the process by which you You found it right it's like you get al capone on taxes you know what he's doing but you gotta you gotta get him on something else yeah yeah wow 
All the articles this week are stressing me out. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a happy Valentine's Day vibe in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, hold the people you love because uh, it's a complicated world out there, and it only gets more complicated every every dang day. That's right. Uh, if, the, <laughs> if the feral hogs if the don't get us, don't, the FBI will. If the feds will. don't get you, yeah. <laughs> be the hogs or Chevron. That's or Chevron will come after uh, you. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Maybe what we need to do is pit these guys against each other. Like, we need to get the feral hogs and Chevron to go head to head and see right. who's powerful then, you know, right. figure out what we can do. To- Unleash the she- the feral hogs on like, you know, wherever anyone's trying to build like a new pipeline. There you go. Like trick Chevron into building a new pipeline in the rural areas of Texas, which has lots of oil. We definitely get yeah. them out here. But make sure that it's on land that is already full of feral hogs so they have to take care of the problem. You know, this sounds so stupid that it might actually work. We should do it. Yeah. We should get on board. Uh, let's let's. Keep this in mind for the next big pipeline protest, guys. <laughs> Try to lure out the feral hogs. With and pumpkins. just so they just wait, you know, they wake up one morning and there's like 100,000 feral hogs just swarming the pipeline, chewing up your construction materials. But whatever you do, don't plan it on the dark web because the FBI is going to know what's happening and they'll uh, they'll get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Organize your peaceful protest. <laughs> okay. yeah, get, yeah, that's right. That's right. Discuss in person, not on the dark web. That's right. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay. Let's talk potty training. All right. <laughs> I know. I, I accomplished know. it many years ago. I'm proud to say. I know. And we're, I am in the midst of it. Yeah. So, so we can, we can talk about this real. So this is from the MIT Press Reader. This is an economist's guide to potty training. This is by Joshua Gans. <laughs> and it's an excerpt from his book, Parentonomics. An economist dad looks at parenting. So this is like big data as applied to everything. This is like the thing where you're, you know, you're life hacking. You're saying what's the statistical ability to break down potty training into its core elements. Yeah. Freakonomics was a big enough hit that at this point uh, you can still sell just about any book by appending onomics. Onomics to the end of it. So, I mean, so this excerpt, he's going through in a cutesy way talking about the toilet training of Mm -hmm. his three children and how he took different approaches for each and using it as a way to talk about how incentives can affect behavior and drive (laughs) behavior and how he attempted to shift those incentives smartly between his first and his second kid before on his third kid realizing that the smartest thing to do quote unquote economically speaking was to outsource potty training just in other words someone with the third kid they it. were just like we'll just let them do potty training at daycare <laughs> um, and isn't that the conclusion of all the Freakonomics based stuff is like to just pay a third party get a consultant make them do it yeah yeah it's like that uh, that four hour work week this stuff which is you know to kind of give me the willies but um <laughs> So, so yeah, I, I, I don't know that I need to go too much into the particulars here because I'm just kind of interested. I, as I said, I am in the, the midst of potty training. And how's it going? Right now. It's going well at daycare, at home. He, he's very happy to sit on the potty, but we don't have a lot of very productive mm-hmm. trips to the potty. And uh, part of perhaps the pro, I don't know if it's a problem or if it's something that it's okay for now, but we have to figure out how to phase it out is the way we got him to agree to sit on the potty at home. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of parents know this story is that like you sit on the potty 
and you can watch a Sesame Street yeah. music video. You get your iPad in your lap yeah. and you get, you get to You get to watch Sesame Street music video while you sit. Only two, mm-hmm. never more than two. The economics one, of this say you're supposed to up the incentive though. Am I supposed to? I so don't know. I'm just... One thing he says in the article is that, oh, the, the kids sometimes needed to sit on the potty for like an hour before they pooped. And it's like, are we being impatient? Do we need to just like let him sit on the potty as long as he wants? If he just demands more and more videos, should we just let him do it until he uses, actually uses the toilet? Yeah. It's, see, the thing is, I, I have my experience with it was every kid is so different. You can't quantify this kind of stuff. The thing that works with one kid never works with the second kid. I, my son, who is now 13, he was adamantly against potty training. He was like, no, I'm not going to go and you can't make me. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the thing that broke that barrier was I told him, if you went in the potty right now, we will go to Target and I will buy you this $30 toy that you had your eye on. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, the instinct in me was, oh, my God, no. Do not guarantee a $30 toy for one trip to the potty. But I was at my wit's end because he was genuinely fighting it. And it, and sure enough, once he had done it once, it was like, oh, OK, this isn't so bad. I can move forward. But the idea, like if I were to try to yeah. write a manual, I would never say, oh, yeah, that's the thing you yeah. want to do. <laughs> that's not advice yeah. for anybody. Offer the hugest present yeah. that they can think of. But I was <laughs> at my wit's end and it happened to work with him. Whereas his younger sister, she basically potty trained herself. I didn't even have to do anything. She was just like, oh, this is what we do. Cool. I got it. And that was it. So, I, you know, I feel like there's a lot of instinct, I think, for people to try to big data these types of things that are so human dependent, and especially a toddler is not even a human. They're not, <laughs> they're not even sort of rational. It's true. But I mean, they do have a strong instinct for understanding an incentive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They definitely although understand they may, incentives. They, they, although they may not take away what you expect them to take away. That's right. In they internalize like what, the what wrong the incentive message. is. Yeah. Uh, again, this is a far more personal, manageable, and human level. But the question does, again, stress me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just it completely breaks your brain like when you are a parent and you want to have some level of consistency around incentives and- mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're trying to you run know, a system here and you've got this child who's like, yeah, I take your system and I refuse to poop on it. Like, <laughs> I, won't, yeah. uh, I won't follow the system that you've so painstakingly set up. Yeah. You know, we want as adults for things to be based on numbers and to be based on predictable patterns. And the very definition of a child is, no, right. they right. don't follow patterns. Right. Or even if we don't really feel that way all the time, at least as parents, we like... Oh, I got to be consistent. You right, know. I, right. You know, I th- that seems that's always a, such a big watchword from the very beginning. Is people thought you got to be consistent. You got to be consistent. Otherwise, the kid will get confused. The kid won't know what's going on. The kid will take the wrong lesson if you're not consistent. They'll mm-hmm. they'll learn that you don't mean what you say, and then all bets are off. You've completely lost control and power. That's right. At that they point. tap into your fear uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> that it's not that you've yeah. made some wrong move yeah. in this one moment. Yeah, and then. A kid who has no ability to be patient at all otherwise suddenly develops this ability to wait you out mm-hmm. when, it, when, when they're mm-hmm. trying to like test <laughs> your ability to stick by what you said and yeah. say, no, we're not going to do X until Y. And then they just make you wait Man. and wait and wait. <sighs> but it's okay. You know, it's, it's okay. Economics, I don't think they can save us here thank you for trying joshua gans i mean he basically kind of 
I mean, does he, he admit in the he article? He comes to the like, conclusion himself because he just throws up his hands at the end. Is like, yeah, the, the I decided ultimately the best way was to like let someone who knew what they were doing more than I did take care of it. So. Yeah, <laughs> there is definitely something as a parent to the idea that someone else is sometimes all that's needed. Because you have a special relationship as that child's parent That's true. that engenders both more love but also more defiance. And there have been, I can't even count how many times I was trying to teach my kids to do something or explain something to them or just, you know, teach them to swim, anything. And it just was not happening because they had a particular association with me that wasn't going to, they weren't going to overcome their relationship That's with right. me. And you hire a swim teacher who's some 16-year-old kid who just gets in the pool and says in a monotone the same thing that you just said. And the kid's like, oh, okay, and does it. And right. it's, you know, sometimes it just got to be somebody else. Because there's still a little bit of awe and uh, perhaps just <laughs> just a kind of baseline respect. <laughs> For, for adults who are not your parents. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But your parents, you just, I feel like you clue in pretty quickly. It's like, these people are a mess. <laughs> yeah. You've seen them at their worst. Yeah. <laughs> these people have vulnerabilities that I can exploit. <laughs> uh, and then you start doing it. And that's how you learn how to become human. And that's what it is to be an adult, is yeah. to figure out other people's vulnerabilities and exploit them. Yeah, yeah. Push push <laughs> their buttons, get what you want. Oh, boy. Well, good luck to all the people potty training out there. Big data probably won't save you, but... Um, yeah, it won't. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today on this lovely Valentine's Day. I don't actually know if it's a lovely day. We record on Tuesdays, but I'm assuming that we will make it to Friday and it will be a lovely Valentine's Day. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, there are plenty other articles that we did not get to. Some of those articles are scientists discover virus with no recognizable genes. Is this the original board game of death? And lewd, creepy, and insulting, surprisingly dark Valentine's Day cards from the past. <laughs> so uh, check those out. If you're a regular listener to podcasts, you may have noticed that there's uh, something missing from our podcast, sponsorships and ads. We don't do those. We don't like them. We know you don't like them. And we want to keep this relationship uh, loving in uh, the theme of <laughs> Valentine's Day. So <laughs> to uh, show your love to us, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. Check out some of the stuff we have. We have some behind-the-scenes audio that you uh, can get if you become a patron of ours on Patreon. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.